Terror in Europe, first Paris, now Brussels. Where next? Trump lashes out. The United Nations is not a friend of democracy. It's not a friend to freedom. It's not a friend even to the United States of America, where, as you know, it has its home. And why Ireland is remembering 1916. Hello, I'm Tim Cooper. Is Belgium the weakest link in Europe's fight against terrorism? Once again, Islamic extremists have struck a European capital city. 31 people were killed, hundreds more injured, in explosions at Brussels airport and a metro station. Belgium's being accused of ignoring warnings about one of the suicide bombers. President Erdogan of Turkey says Ibrahim El Bakawi was arrested there last summer. Well, I'm joined by Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with me, as usual, in the studio. But first, let's cross to Brussels and hear from Sky News correspondent Ender Brady. Hello there, Ender. Hi, Tim. Good to speak to you. Yeah, great to speak to you, Ender. People in Belgium must be asking what on earth is going on with their own security apparatus at this stage. They're, they are. They're angry, and they knew this was coming. That is the really shocking thing. Everyone says that they, they do feel angry, they do feel shocked, but they knew it would end like this. For the last four months, Salah Abdeslam has been the world's most wanted man, and unbelievably, he has been living in plain sight, uh, just a couple of kilometres away from where the attacks took place in the district of Molenbeek. He was arrested on Friday, and then the attacks took place on Tuesday. Now, a lot of the anger here has spilled over into the political scene today. The Interior Minister and the Justice Minister have both offered their resignations to the Prime Minister, Charles Michel. Uh, he has declined those offers to stand down, and he says that they will get through this together. I'm in Place de la Bourse right now in the centre of the town where people are gathering, laying flowers, lighting candles, and writing messages about peace on the pavements in chalk. Um, but behind this... There is a, a simmering anger just about how poor the intelligence services have been here. Yes, it does make you wonder. Of course, there's the Brussels side of things, Belgium itself as a sovereign state, but also it's the home to NATO and the EUHQ there. So why, one must wonder, did they not do more, or at least appear to do more, because we certainly didn't see them attempting to do anything after the Paris attacks? Well, there are many strands to this. I think the key problem they have here, and many, many experts here have told us this, that there is a, a, a suspicion amongst various different police and intelligence services and the different districts and the breakdown in the, the authority chain. They don't share information amongst themselves, let alone with anyone else. And a lot of people here are wondering just how it was that Ibrahim El Bakarawi was managed to be deported out of Turkey with the Turkish president telling the Dutch authorities and the Belgians, this guy is a foreign fighter, and they deported him from Turkey, and he was able to continue living openly here uh, alongside his brother, and he then turned up at the airport on Tuesday. The other brother, Khalid, bombed the metro. So a lot of people are wondering just what needs to happen for these kind of suspects to be picked up. Um, it is an extraordinary set of circumstances, and uh, yeah, it will take some time, but remember, they didn't have a government here for 18 months, and that you know, probably did not help the situation either. 
That's a very fair point. And uh, Ender Brady from Sky News, thank you very much indeed for joining us live there from Brussels. Well, speaking to us now from London, Dr. Corinne von Hippel. Uh, Corinne, thanks very much for joining us uh, on SITREP. First question to you. How have Islamic terrorists managed to, as Ender was describing there very eloquently, to set up shop, as it were, in the shadow of those big European institutions? Look, I'm not one to be criticising the Belgian security forces. I think all democratic societies are vulnerable, irrespective of how good uh, information sharing is and intelligence sharing is, because we're all open societies, and I don't think any of us want to live in a police state. So, unfortunately, I think we will be seeing more of these types of attacks in the near future. It doesn't mean we can't do more and we shouldn't do more, and certainly if if the Belgian intelligence and police and others need to improve their information sharing, I'm sure they'll be on the case. But, you know, these types of attacks will continue, unfortunately. Yes, you make a very good point, because we're a democracy, Europe, Belgium, all democracies, and with a democracy comes that freedom that allows people to operate. The difficulty is clamping down on it, isn't it? Without, I mean, you can go into any shopping mall, any hotel. There's so many places where we're vulnerable, and you see that. I mean, all of us think about that now when we take the tube, when we go into any public space. We think about those vulnerabilities now. Christopher Lee, let's bring you in on this. And we, we hear about the, the, the terror cells. It, it, it seems to me they appear to be an organised operation. Is that how they operate, or is it more fluid than that? Uh, it certainly is. And we must get away from the idea that, uh, that IS, Daesh, whatever you like to call it, is just a bucket shop organisation. Uh, they have, for example, uh, what they would call their external operations department, and it's, it's it's about fifteen hundred people working it working it. It's, it's, really, it's, it's an organisation called Omni, which is uh, roughly translated as a security. Now, when you put in cells and you can return people, because there's some of the people we've been talking about in the last sort of seventy-two hours uh, were in, in 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 Belgium. They returned to Syria. They were then returned back through the refugee columns. Uh-huh. Returned back. Picked up in by their own people in in Budapest, brought to brought to, uh, to Belgium, put into mount an attack or try and sort out an attack with a very good idea of what they're doing. These are properly funded. There is a, a, a budget of something like fifty thousand euros uh, to to set up an attack because if anything it means it means that you've got to you've got to pay people, you've got to have safe houses, you've got to have cars, etc. Now, the Cunha, who is the leader, who is the if you like, the godfather working work, working lo- locally, he is the man that will set this whole thing up and is a proper, proper military, as near as you can get mm. it, or, or organisation. So let's stop thinking about a bucket shop uh, 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 people. Well, that, that does fly in the face of what many people imagine, I think, because we hear about the phrase lone wolf, and we've seen certain terror trials that have taken place in this country where people have been operating independently, inspired by IS, you could say, uh, loosely, but... Kareem, with that sort of organisation that Christopher uh, outlined there, it leads us to think that they'll be operating, Karen, in, in other places too, which asks the question, what's the next target likely to be? Could it be London? Right. I mean, Christopher raises a good point. We need to distinguish between situations where it is a lone wolf, where it is someone inspired by ISIL, and ISIL has called out for Muslims all over the world to do isolated attacks, and we've seen some of those. You remember in Sydney in December there was that attack in the coffee shop or the chocolate shop. So we will see those types of acts. Um, We need to distinguish between those and the ISIL core uh, 
planning and executing such attacks, which it seems to be the case in Brussels and Paris. And they are able to draw linkages back. I think the way that we looked at it when I was in government was, is there a command and control relationship? Are there people and money going back and forth between the different affiliates and the core and is there messaging going back and forth? If you, if you looked at Boko Haram uh, when they uh, claimed that they joined up with ISIL and then you started watching their videos and you would notice very quickly that they've actually upgraded the way they were doing messaging. They were doing something very similar to what ISIL headquarters was doing on its messaging. So it was obvious that there were some linkages, how close Boko Haram and ISIL uh, are today is still to be determined, but there are more linkages than there were before. Okay, Dr. Karen von Hippel, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, from London there. Let's move on to our next item on SITREP today. Donald Trump, the front-runner for the Republican presidential nomination in the United States, has questioned the need for NATO. Mr. Trump says involvement in the security organisation is costing America a fortune, and NATO wasn't the only institution in the firing line. He went on to criticise the UN. The United Nations is not a friend of democracy. It's not a friend to freedom. It's not a friend even to the United States of America, where, as you know, it has its home. And it surely is not a friend to Israel. Mr. Trump also told the most influential pro-Israel lobby in Washington that his first priority as president would be to dismantle the nuclear agreement with Iran, saying the deal was a disaster for America, Israel and the Middle East. Well, let's now talk to Michael Stathis, who is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Southern Utah. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for joining us uh, on SITREP. I think the important thing for us to hear is to turn away from the, the, the Trumpisms we see in the media. You know, he's got funny hair, he says some bad things. It's all about, really, the, the cause of a Trump, isn't it? How has America managed to produce a man like this at this moment in time? Well, number one, he's a rank opportunist, of course, uh, and he's a very successful uh, real estate agent. Uh, now, sometimes we equate that with uh, someone being no better than a used car salesman, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I know an awful lot of uh, real estate people who are very honorable people. I don't count him as one of them. Uh, he is trying to take advantage, of course, of uh, political situation after political situation, and this week, of course, uh, uh, was like a golden egg that landed in his lap, uh, both for his own particular cause, uh, which is running for President of the United States, but also uh, to uh, lay criticism on the Obama administration. And of course, the people he is talking to, uh, his rank and file, are um, basically lapping this up. This is what they want to hear. He knows that, and he plays to their ear. Christopher Lee, America's our biggest ally. We I suppose we look up to America. We do, of course we do. We, we rely on the judgment of successive presidents to, in some ways, guide our own foreign policy. What's yeah. this saying to us? Well, I tell you what, if you go back, um, Michael will tell you this. If you go back to 79, do you remember we were saying, Reagan? We're doing what? <laughs> eh? This man comes from Hollywood. <laughs> and yet he's proved to be the, one of the more successful uh, presidents. Um, uh, that we've had since in, in post-war. But uh, what I can't see and what, what I still can't understand is what has happened, Michael, to... Um, what has happened to, I can say, American politics, but the American sort of uh, psyche that said, 
It is now the time that you Republicans, you grand old party, you cannot find anybody more powerful than this man to take on Hillary Clinton. Well, the Republican Party uh, is not particularly happy about what uh, uh, this phenomenon has uh, uh, produced. They do not want uh, Donald Trump to be their candidate. Uh, and they're being very, very open and vocal that he does not represent the uh, uh, the core values of uh, American conservatism and uh, the Republican Party. And uh, uh, that's very true. But he is a monster that they created, or at the very least, they tolerated and allowed to get a foot on the stage. And now that he's here, they don't know what to do with him. Um, and uh, certainly he has um, uh, the snowball effect politically. Uh, he has become far too prominent to uh, dismiss. Uh, he may likely be the candidate uh, to run against whoever the Democrats put up uh, in November. I'm not drawing a comparison with Hitler, um, with Trump here, but what I'm going to say is, it's back in 1930, whenever, um, there was a time where he was the most popular politician, but the establishment could not stand him, but they had to, von Papen, I think it was, who was president at the time, had to appoint him chancellor. A similarity there with the Republican Party. They really don't want this bloke, but they're going to have to work with him. Well, at this point, they might, uh, at least tempor temporarily. And, uh, of course, uh, similarities, comparisons have been made with uh, Nazi Germany. My favorite is with Mussolini. I think it's a little bit closer there. But it is true. Uh, for a good deal of time, Trump served a purpose for uh, uh, the Republican Party and American conservatism. Uh, he was saying things that they did not want to, that they could not afford to say uh, publicly, but uh, uh, you know, they would urge Trump to say ridiculous things about President Obama, about the state of the United States. But uh, what they did not count on is that there is a very, very powerful extremely uh, radical um, uh, a core in the Republican Party that really does believe the kind of things that Trump is, uh, is, is blasting away at. And uh, right now in a primary situation, it has given Trump the upper hand. Yeah. He is likely to be an American presidential candidate. It is unreal. Um, uh, in fact, it uh, may even be shocking, but uh, it uh, it very well could be reality. And not even from Alaska. Listen, there is a there is a there is a uh, just final thought here, Michael. Um, Trump has been saying these terrible uh, about things about Iran. We're, we're, we're going to bundle this deal. We're going to throw it out. But in fact, what he would mean, his own advisers would mean that they'll renegotiate it if they can. They can't renegotiate it because anyway, Congress wouldn't let him, and nor would the Allies, etc., etc. But there's an irony here, isn't there? I was saying about uh, President Reagan, we thought, oh, we got an actor. But just before President Reagan, we had a peanut farmer. And a peanut <laughs> farmer had a problem. And a peanut farmer had a problem. And in fact, it was called Iran. And that meant he wasn't going to get re-elected. So I suppose there's hope for all sorts of politics yet. <laughs> it, history plays out. I threatened to leave the country if Ronald Reagan uh, were elected uh, uh, president. Uh, uh, I am not one of those who feel that he was that great. Um, um, I think uh, Jimmy Carter was probably, in some ways, an unfortunate character, but a better president. And I'm not, uh, I, I'm not betting that Trump is going to uh, uh, be able to redecorate the White House. <laughs> I think that's a good point to leave it. Professor Michael Stathis from uh, the University of Southern Utah, thank you so much indeed for joining thank us so on much. SITREP. Thank, thank you. you.
Still to come, why defence is an election issue in Scotland. The legacy of 1916, Ireland commemorates, but does Britain ignore? Yes, you are indeed listening to Sit Red with me, Tim Cooper. Former Bosnian leader Radovan Karadzic has been sentenced to 40 years in prison after being found guilty of genocide and crimes against humanity during the Bosnian Wars of the 1990s. Karadzic uh, was the figurehead of the Bosnian Serb army and this process at the Hague has been going on for eight years after he was arrested, living quite openly in Belgrade, having assumed another identity. An important development, Christopher. Very important. I mean, apart from apart from all the platitudes that come out and the fact that it that, that you know justice will out at the end of all this, um, it was perhaps one of the darkest moments. Uh, the discoveries of bodies, especially mm. at Srebrenica, uh, um, the darkest moments in probably since uh, since the Second World War mm. and Hitlerism. What is interesting here um, is forty years. If he stays, that's it, Karadzic. That's where you live from now onwards. But it reminds us that of the power of probably two men in particular. There's Karadzic himself, um, the leader. There's also his military commander, a man called General Mladic. Mm-hmm. And Mladic escaped. He escaped to Palais, up in the hills there. That was the Bosnian Serb capital right. at the time. That's right. And everybody knew he was there. And everybody knew which bar he was using. Mm. And nobody, nobody would A, tell and B, go and get him. Now, that that sort of society still exists, and I think that when we discuss the great issues of modern Europe, and whether it's terrorism or whatever it is, we have to remember that what happened in Srebrenica is, in theory, and in, in, in theory certainly, is only a train ride away from anywhere else in Europe. Yes, it is. Uh, it's quite frightening to think. I mean, we can go back to the Second World War on this one. There was no sort of denazification of some of the Croatians who fought on the same side as, as the Nazis. Tito kept everyone together through fear and, uh, well, being a dictator. But then it all unravelled. Yeah, and it but could was, again. Yeah, it could. But I, I mean, I was done. I was done in that part of the world uh, about three or four months ago. And uh, if you talk to, for example, the Croatians about what happened to them. And when they talk about the war, they talk about 1991. We talk yes. about the war, it sort of doesn't matter how young we are, you certainly go back to World War II. But that is the fixation, and that is the fixation of a per- part of the world that still the Western states in the EU... Which Slovenia really, and Croatia. Which, mm-hmm. Yes, well, the, the Western states in, in, in the EU, like Germany, France, oh. etc., um, they govern the way that Europe's going without taking a great deal of understanding if what of the meanings, the attitudes, uh, the identities of the sort of people we're talking about with the Karadzic story. Karadzic story will be reviewed in history as one of the great mysteries of how we, not only it happened, at how we, the people who thought we were running Europe, allowed it to happen, and certainly the Americans allowed it to happen. And that is exactly what's going on with IS at the moment. Yes, and it's an issue, um, this news today, I'm sure we'll return to on SITREP in future weeks. Now, moving on. In May, voters will go to the polls in Scotland to vote for a new Scottish Parliament. On the surface, defence doesn't appear to be an election issue. But as Alec Gibson reports, it does have some great significance north of the border. Every five years, the Scottish people elect 129 members of Scottish Parliament to Holyrood. They vote for MSPs for their policies on healthcare, education, tax-raising powers... However, what's also likely to gain some attention is defence. 
It's a reserved issue, meaning the UK government has overall control. But Scotland is home to hundreds of thousands of veterans, thousands of military personnel and a controversial nuclear submarine base. Her Majesty's naval base Clyde in Faslane is Scotland's biggest single-site employer. These aren't issues to be ignored. Brendan O'Hara is the SNP's defence spokesperson. His party believe the billions of pounds the Conservatives want to spend on the Trident renewal programme is obscene. Spending so much money on a nuclear deterrent you know, that can only be used in a last resort, you know, when there is no other option, when you invest so heavily to almost an extent that your first line of defence is almost your last line of defence, then I think you've got it seriously wrong. But the Conservatives do believe they have it right. Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Conservative Party leader, says the Trident submarines are worth it. They're there as a deterrent effect. We've never had an attack on our soil, therefore I would suggest they've been used every single day. We're part of NATO alliance. I believe that it's important that we uphold our duties in the wider world at a time when rogue nations and states that are without a nation are building up their weapons capabilities. I think it would be foolish of us to unilaterally disarm here in the UK. For the other parties, the Greens want to scrap Trident. The Lib Dems want to keep three submarines instead of four. And the Labour Party is split, with a policy review underway. But away from the nuclear question to matters closer to home. The lives of military families and veterans will be affected by decisions made in the next Scottish Parliament. Jackie Bailey is from Scottish Labour. For me, that is about housing, making sure that you know, they are given priority. It is about access to medical care, because in some cases people are leaving the forces with particular conditions. We need to make sure they can access medical care quickly and effectively in their local area. It seems that on the topic of the military covenant, there is more common ground. Willie Rennie is the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. How do we get the right kind of accommodation? How do we get the right transition out of the armed forces into civilian life? And how do we deal with tricky issues like mental health support? Because we know that some veterans have difficulties acclimatising back into civilian life after some traumatic experiences in conflict zones. So I think, I hope that those become the big issues if defence is on the table. All of the major parties as well as the Greens, UKIP, Solidarity and RISE, which is Scotland's left alliance, are encouraging the military community to consider all the issues ahead of May, and most importantly, to use their vote. Ali Gibson for BFBS. BFBS Zibrep. This weekend, Ireland will commemorate the 100th anniversary of the 1916 Easter Rising. The rebellion was launched by Irish Republicans to end British rule and establish an independent Irish Republic. The British Army quickly suppressed the Rising and the ringleaders surrendered and were later executed. Irish journalist and historian Ruth Dudley Edwards has written a book about this and joins us now. Ruth, thank you for joining us on SITREP. Good to be here, Tim. Now, this all, of course, happened back in 1916 when Britain was deeply engaged in the First World War. And many of those fighting Britain, for Britain, were, of course, from Ireland. We, we forget this now. We were one country at war with others in Europe, and then this all happened. How significant is this Easter Rising? It's immensely significant, um, and it, it, it has influenced the development of Irish history for the last 100 years. Now... The people who think it was justified and a good thing would say that it brought independence. 
much nearer than um, had it not happened. There was, however, a measure of home rule on the statute book at the time. Uh, as you say, Britain was engaged in a war. Uh, from my perspective, it was wholly and absolutely immoral because it, it, these people had no mandate. They were in a democracy. They'd never been elected to anything. They were just seven people who had decided off their own bat that they were right and everyone else was wrong and they would um, organise a revolution with a tiny number of people, um, whatever the consequences. And their mantra was, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity, which was an old Fenian phrase. So for them, the, the war was a huge opportunity and they were going to use it for their their aims. Now, this is all... Very interesting, your, your stance on this, because that isn't a view shared by a significant number of people in Ireland, even a 100 years on. Many people will celebrate the 1916 Easter Rising as, as the birth of the beginning of freedom for the Irish. And I gather as well, in, in some schools even today, it is celebrated, whereas you're saying it uh, was an act of opportunists almost. Is it right the way Ireland views this rising? Well, I think it was terribly wrong for a, a very long time. But I think Ireland has matured enormously. And what they're doing now is really a sea change from, say, 50 years ago when it was just a celebration which actually inflamed passions in Northern Ireland and helped to lead to the troubles. Inflamed passions on both sides. What they're now doing is commemorating. They are deliberately, the government, not celebrating. And they are acknowledging that it wasn't just the people who were executed by the British who should be remembered. It's everybody who died in the Rising, including um, members of the British Army, including the police who were killed, including the civilians. And there is going to be a memorial in Glasnevin Cemetery to everybody who died as a result of the Rising. And, I mean, the, the, the good news here, from my perspective, is that, for instance, they've got, they have commemorative stamps. One of them is um, of an unarmed policeman who was shot and the other is of the rebel who shot him. Now until a few years ago that rebel was a popular hero. Now so it is acknowledged that the other man was an Irish Catholic doing his duty as a policeman and should not have been murdered. So a change in perspective from this distance um, which, which you view as positive there but still we, we have people even now using this as an excuse to kill other Irish people, the, the poor prison officer recently in Northern Ireland. Will Ireland ever be comfortable enough with itself, with its own existence, to completely reevaluate what has happened? Well, I'm with you completely on this, Tim. This is, this is the question that I'm actually addressing. I mean, my book is about the seven people who did this, who are remarkable people in many ways, and, and very selfless and brave in other ways as well, just utterly and absolutely obsessive and unconcerned with consequences, if you like. But um, the question I'm asking is, why are we listening to their voices? Their voices have been actually dictating every phase of violence in Irish history for the last century. It's been... Uh, see, there was a retrospective justification of these people. They had no popular support whatsoever, but there was a great wave of sympathy when, when they were executed, and they suddenly became martyrs and heroes, and uh, after that they couldn't be questioned. And one of them, who was a very gifted propagandist, Patrick Pierce, had left words which have been tremendously useful to all the IRAs since. And they're always about, you don't compromise. You will never, ever give up until you've got every 
every part of Ireland independent. Um, and we've got a situation where Sinn Féin are trying to get retrospective justification for their actions, for the IRA's actions during the Troubles. They haven't got it yet, but they're working very hard to get it. Mm. They're putting their hunger strikers on a par with the men of 1916. Uh, the dissidents are saying, no, we're the logical successors, because we know we can't, there should be no compromise, and they're the people who murdered that poor prison officer mm. Mm. a couple of weeks ago. Now, I think the Irish have got to face up to their, their ghosts and their ancestral voices. And one of these years say it probably was wrong. Mm. But nonetheless, you know, our history is our history. Yes, it certainly is. Ruth Dudley Edwards, thank you very much indeed for joining us on SITREP. Christopher, a few moments for you talking about a significant visit to Cuba. I think it's the most I think it's the biggest story of the year so far, anyway. And there's President Obama has gone to Cuba and he's been he's been talking to President Castro and he hasn't stopped by saying, Hey, this is a nice place you've got here. Uh, he's saying human rights, we've got a lot of problems to to get through, but this is the first visit since 1959. That is quite something. The whole of Central America, the whole of the Americans is going to change perspective because of it. Important times. Christopher, thank you for watching. Don't forget our podcast. Look for it, BFBS Sit Rep. From me, Tim Cooper and Christopher Lee, thank you for listening. Goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Brother Van Karadich is sentenced to 40-